Good evening, folks, and coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown, you are listening to the award-winning InfoHub Hour with Rashida Jammu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom John. And this is Maleka Fruin. I live here in Germantown with my family. You can check out what's going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org. It's Veterans Day, and we want to acknowledge all of those who have served and are currently serving and those we have lost. On this show, we're going to hear about a crucial issue in our community, and that's gun violence. And before our interviews, we want to just inform and invite you to an event film screening showcasing two independent documentaries by local residents who have lost loved ones to this ongoing plague of gun violence. And later on, we will hear from an organization working on solutions for gun violence at the community level. Producer of Never Ending Emotions, Kimberly Kamara, will present her 45-minute film, which features a series of interviews that addresses the emotional roller coaster of life-changing events following the murder of a family member and discussing possible solutions to gun violence in Philadelphia. Director and producer of Sometimes I Cry in Jeans, Shamika Sawyer, presents her 20-minute film that follows Sawyer and her mother as they struggle to accept the untimely murder of their beloved son and brother. It is credited in the Enquirer as her love letter to her brother. And the screening will happen next Thursday at Our House Culture Center that is located at 6380 Germantown Ave. Again, that's 6380 Germantown Ave. Doors will open at 6 p.m. and there is limited seating. So please just make sure you visit our website right now at Germantown Info Hub to register for this event. And we are requiring everyone to at this event to wear a mask. But we do invite you to come out and engage with us and others. And again, that's, the screening will happen on Thursday, November 18th, so next week. You know, we'll be partnering with our own Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Freedom John, for this event. Rashid, why did you want to host this event? So there are a few reasons why I wanted to help co-curate this event. And so first, I think that it's important that we just point out that as community members, we have to make the connection between gun violence and COVID-19. Uh, and they're very much codependent on each other. And there have been numerous studies that have shown links between crime rates and poverty. And so we know that COVID-19 has tremendously aided poverty levels. So meaning crime and gun violence is going to go up, right? And second, I actually know Kimberly Kamara's um, son, and she is actually the producer for Never Ending Emotions, the first film we're going to see on Thursday, next Thursday. And her son, Neem, was actually one of my brother's closest friends when we were in grade school. And so we all went to Legal Box together, which is right on Wayne Ave. And I actually did a story on Kimberly a few months ago when I first started this job as a reporter. And when I asked for a picture, she actually sent me a picture of her son, who was Neem, who I knew. And I was actually really just blown away, right? Because in that moment, I kind of realized how I had to then tell my brother that his childhood friend, you know, was gone. And that's just one of the themes in both films. So they help to illustrate that gun violence really isn't a one-on-one thing. And it isn't something that resolved after someone's life is taken. And it's almost a lifelong grieving process because memories and feelings attached to people will never die, right? And so this is really just a gift to those filmmakers because I think they deserve that. 
And this is really just a way that we can send a message and also make sure that our creators are supported in the process. And so I really, 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 really hope that folks can come out, watch those two films and maybe meet somebody new and leave thinking of a creative and relevant way to hinder and disarm gun violence in the future. You're exactly right, Rashid. Thank you so much for, for letting us know all of that. And you're exactly right that it really does show how connected we all are in this neighborhood and how uh, when someone loses a loved one to gun violence, we all lose people to gun violence. It affects an entire neighborhood. It affects people in schools. It affects people in churches. It affects people in organizations. You know, earlier this year, we talked to Shamika Sawyer one of the other filmmakers, about the process of creating the film about her brother, who was lost to gun violence this past year, right during the beginning of the pandemic. Shamika, tell us a little bit about your history in the Germantown neighborhood. I grew up in Germantown. Um, I lived right on Belfield Avenue. Uh, <laughs> so, like, my roots were here in, in Germantown. Like, I went to Emlyn uh, Elementary School. I went to Ada Lewis uh, Middle School and um, King High School. So, yeah, I'm pretty much a, a Germantown native. <laughs> I know that you're also a filmmaker. Yes. Tell us how that started. How did that start in your life, making films? It started with, Uh, just playing around with my brothers. Um, We would always make like these funny um, cassette tapes. So that's showing you how old I am, right? (laughs) We would make these like funny cassette tapes and um, play around with those. And then uh, my oldest brother, he bought a video camera. So we would make like uh, little short videos and um, he was into music. He was a rapper. So we would um, make music videos for for his rap songs. And then eventually, when I was in college, um, I decided to take filmmaking a little bit more serious. So I studied the craft. It wasn't my major, but as an elective. And I fell in love with it even more. So I just decided to continue on with just making films and teaching others how to make films as well. What do you like to explore in your film? Well, for me, um, I mostly center on documentary. Um, I just like to tell real stories from real people just to share their experiences and to let others in uh, into the the lives of these people and um, their experiences. Because I just think that we need more openness and more honesty, and I think documentary, for the most part, is a, um, a true way to show that. Let's talk about your most recent film. Mm-hmm. I know that it was inspired by your brother. Right. And his death. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, like I mentioned, um, I had two brothers. Uh, my oldest brother... Uh, passed away from cancer in uh, 2011, and my youngest brother was uh, murdered in Germantown uh, during the beginning stages of the pandemic uh, last year. Um, Prior to me making a, a short documentary about him and what happened to him, we were working on 
a documentary just about him, period, because I, in my opinion, he's a very fascinating person. Like he, he's a, a rapper. Well, he was a rapper and, um, but he had so much more to him besides just music. And, uh, we would, you know, shoot some, some footage of his life just because I thought that it would be great to share. Unfortunately, he was murdered and I had all of this uh, video footage that um, we had together. So I decided I didn't want what we were working on to just uh, disappear, that I wanted to figure out a way to keep his memory alive and to let the world know who he was. So I decided to just finish this documentary on my own, but opposed to focusing on his life, as a rapper, I wanted to focus on my relationship and my mother's relationship with him and um, what he meant to us and his family. Thank you for that. And I want to get more into actually unfolding how that process went. But first, I want to hear more about your brother and about his and about his rapping and about let me let me hear a good story about him. <laughs> um, I could tell you that. He would light up a room. Um, very charismatic, very confident, um, at times outspoken. It's just when he was in a room, you knew he was there. He had that presence. Um, he was very um, sensitive. A lot of people didn't know that. Um, so it was easy for his feelings to to be hurt. But he always, on the outside, showed this strong persona. And he really didn't let too many people see that he was not as strong as they thought he was. He used to mentor um, young boys in the neighborhood about going to school and uh, trying to make better choices uh, for their lives, opposed to you know getting involved in things that they shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't perfect, I will say that. He had his challenges, but at the end of the day, he was he was my brother and he was everything. I'm sorry, I always get emotional when I talk about him. You have to apologize. That's okay. Um can you yeah. tell me about one of his rap videos about filming a rap video with him? Yeah, so uh, he has quite a few. Um, most of them were shot by me, of course, because I was his big sister. So, <laughs> and um, that's something that I enjoy to do. So he would call me and um, say, hey, listen, I have this song. Let's go shoot a video. So um, he has a song that um, a lot of his friends and his uh, kids really enjoy. And it talks about just trying to live life and survive and um, just trying to do things your way and not feel the pressure of society to be something that you're not. It's called um, You Can Make It If You Want to Make It. 
And um, like he was more so like the hardcore street rapper, but this one song was different, um, different from what he would normally focus on because he wanted his son. Well, he has two two sons. He wanted his sons to hear a side of him um, that was more focused on showing them who they could be and that they didn't have to feel pressure to be something that they weren't because of what others were doing or, you know, like what their friends may want them to do or may want them to be, that they were free to choose who they wanted to be. So that was like one of our favorite songs. Um, And then the rest of his music was like, (laughs) as they call um, in hip hop, like street battle type music that, actually did pretty well for him on the underground level. Yeah. Where would you all shoot the videos? In Germantown. <laughs> we would be uh, in the neighborhood where he used to hang out. So he would hang out on um, Toplahocken and Morton. So we would be around there. And then the videos weren't anything like with special effects or we had to rent uh, studios or anything like that because that just wasn't his personality he was more so about being real and showing people um the realness of him and he really didn't like the glitz and glamour stuff so we just kept it really uh raw and um in your face let's let's talk about creating a film Mm-hmm. about him you had already you had already started because you were documenting his his life and his his art tell me about that process and I know it's just still so raw how do you how do you do that as an artist yes yeah, so for me creating uh this short film was therapy in, in one way um in some weird way it made me feel closer to him um, and on the flip side of that, it was hard to do because he was not here physically to be a part of putting this film together. I went about this as trying to be as honest as I could be um, in the situation. I wanted my mother to be a part of it because I think that this short film shows a side of gun violence that many people don't get a chance to really see and hear from the family, especially from siblings as well, our perspective and how this gun violence impacts us, our families, our communities. So I didn't want to just focus strictly on his life. I also wanted to show how what happened to him really impacted us as a family in the hopes of other people seeing this and thinking Mm -hmm. twice before they decide to take someone's life. Will that happen? I don't know, but that's my hope. Have you talked to other families of gun violence victims in the area? So some have reached out to me after, um, the article in the daily news and um, you know, it's just that we share 
this same pain of losing someone untimely, unexpectedly, and during a pandemic, you know, and that's that makes it even harder because you're not really able to be around a lot of people like, you know, stopping by to see if you're okay and all of that. You don't really have that now because, you know, we have to social distance and just hearing their stories about the pain and the loss and uh, just, just being unsure about life in Philadelphia, just dealing with the fact that people are getting murdered every day here and how it feels like it's almost a hopeless situation and that it's far too many families who experience this same tragedy, whether it's from someone who looks like us to law enforcement. So, you know, for us, it's just, it's just a difficult situation to be in. I'm a mother. I have boys and one daughter, but, you know, I'm more paranoid now uh, than ever before with my older children going out and doing anything, even walking to the corner store because I just don't know what's going to happen just because they're young black boys, you know, in a society where they're not valued as much as they should be. So, you know, just sharing those experiences with others, you know, a husband, I I talked to a woman who lost a husband, another person lost a brother. You just never get over it. It changes you from here on out. Like it's, it's something that will stick with you for the rest of your life. You will never be the same. You just learn how to cope each day. But mm-hmm. like I'm so extra paranoid when it comes to my kids doing anything. It's like I'm calling, I'm texting, where are you? If I don't hear from them in a timely manner, I'm like, okay, if I don't hear from you, I'm going to try and find out, you know, what's happening, where you are, what's going on. And I didn't used to be that way. But uh, after my brother's murder, it just made me like on heightened alert with with my kids. And I know there's other women, Black women, who have sons who feel this way, unfortunately. You know, like my mother, there are people who have lost their child, you know, to, to gun violence. Some... Mothers have lost more than one child to gun violence. So it's just it's just a hard space to be in. There were so many homicides last year. It's it's just it's like you said, it just seems hopeless sometimes. Right. It it really feels that way, but I do know in my heart that things can get better. We just had to figure out, like, how do we, how do we approach the situation in a way that it makes a strong enough impact that we can uh, decrease the level of gun violence here in Philadelphia. Actually, you know, in other places too, who struggle with the same issue. 
I know that there is a solution out there. It's just we have to f- figure it out. I think there's it's it's probably going to be so many different solutions, right? Right. Shamika, do you think that like art is one of the solutions? I I do believe art is one of the solutions um simply because I think with film, with photography, with media in general, it's powerful, right? Um, a film or a, a photo or a piece of artwork can evoke emotion. It has that power. It has the power to spark conversations, change narratives. So I do believe that that art is definitely a way to... Um, shed more light on the experiences of of people who are dealing with different issues. And um, it's a way to definitely bring these issues to the forefront in a creative manner where it doesn't feel like it's being pushed on you, but in a way where it's open so people will be more receptive of it. when it doesn't feel like it's like thrown in your face and, you know, like you better do this or we have to do this. I think with art, you could create an environment where everyone feels welcome and still feels comfortable enough to express themselves and ask the questions that they would like to ask and just spark that, that conversation that I think, needs to be had um, surrounding many different topics, especially gun violence. So definitely art, yes. What do you think are the next stories or ideas that you have after you've gone through this difficult year and putting together the short film? What do you see next? Uh, I see um, trying to focus on um, enlightening stories. Um, I know during this documentary, um, it was therapy for me and um, it was a way for me to showcase my brother to the world, in my opinion. Um, But I don't want to stay in a space that focuses on um, the things that are wrong in our society. I would like to bring more stories of um, inspiration, motivation, things on that level as well. I'm not going to say I don't want to continue with uh, following the stories that are similar to mine with my brother, because I do believe that these other families who are experiencing this need to get their stories out because when the cameras and the news and the media leaves, we are still there. We are still struggling through uh, the loss of our loved one. So I do think if more of those stories are brought to the forefront, that maybe more conversations can be had and maybe uh, some type of action can take place. But I don't want to be known for just focusing on um, that I also want to focus on the beautiful things in life and um, 
perseverance and just overcoming challenges and things like that. So I think it would be a mix between the two. Um, but I think what we focus on is what we become. So I don't want to focus specifically on just violence. I do want to show too that we, all of us who experience this, this situation with gun violence, we do have times where we smile, where we laugh, where the memories aren't always sad. They hurt though, but they're not always sad that there's good memories, there are good times. And um, I also want to put out there that people shouldn't feel um, like they're doing something wrong if they find moments to smile and enjoy life because of what they're going through. So I would like to also put that out there as well. Now we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear from the Urban Health Lab about their grassroots initiative to improve our communities.
And you are listening to the InfoHub Hour right here at Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGT, LP, Philadelphia. And back to your host, Maleka and Rashid. Thanks, Tom. A few weeks ago, I came across an article in the New York Times by Dr. Eugenia Self. She's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and also researches how neighborhood and city environment impacts health, especially for people in poverty. I was intrigued by the data and the research that backed some common sense knowledge I've heard from community leaders in Germantown. What a place looks like matters. Vacant lots, litter, and illegal dumping are proven to cause adverse effects to our health. And investing in cleaning up our physical spaces might prevent gun violence. Maleka got a chance to talk with the Urban Health Lab's director, Nicole Thomas, on these issues and a little bit more. Nicole works with Dr. South and a team of researchers, students, scientists, and other folks interested in urban public spaces and health. We will hear from them now. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nicole. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with this. How about you give us a, a brief overview of the Urban Health Lab for, for folks that aren't familiar with your work? Sure. So the Urban Health Lab is a research action group based within the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And we're committed to the promotion of the health and safety of neighborhoods and their residents through the dismantling of structural inequities, uh, racism, poverty, and really reversing the impact of historical disenfranchisement of minoritized groups. So our work centers around creating evidence that will motivate change at both the policy or systems level, as well as at the community level. So we partner with community residents and leaders and policymakers. Um, we're a group of scientists and local residents, in fact, and students who really want to work together to address some of the most prevalent issues. We have a really unique focus on place-based interventions, mm. which include vacant lots, tree planting, microparks uh, creation. We also have worked around abandoned house remediation and structural repairs to occupy homes, as well as trash cleanups and more to really think about how the places where people live impacts their health and how making changes to those places can have a positive effect. And it's both physical and mental health that we, we, we think of when we say health, as well as some of the social conditions that we see in our neighborhoods and many black and brown communities in particular, um, who have, which have been systematically disinvested in over you know, time. So we really center our work around partnering with communities, building healthy neighborhoods, and creating the evidence to hopefully push for change. It sounds like there's so many different partnerships going on, so much different connections happening with that work, especially that place-based work. How, how do you get these things accomplished? What does that work look like on the ground? The one thing that's an overarching principle for the Urban Health Lab is to work with communities because obviously they have the most knowledge and the lived experience to really understand the depth and the details of the issues that we're, we're addressing. 
And um, we really take a strength-based approach in working with our community partners. So we don't come from the position of, you know, looking solely at what's wrong in a community. Um, we all know about the issues, but every community across this city and across this nation has assets. So we look at what's already there upon which we can build. We look at things that will sustain beyond our project or our study, things that communities can so we can help build the capacities for within community organizations or groups or individuals. The idea is that we listen and we learn first. So mm -hmm. the Urban Health Lab, while we create evidence and we have the research skills um, and the scientific knowledge and capacity, we realize that the community really has what we need, which is the valuable knowledge, the experience, and really can inform the process and the project. So we really try to partner in a way that we're listening we want to gain an understanding of the community perspectives. We want to understand the landscape in general of the community, how the networks sort of interface, how groups work together, and really just learn about their interests and their goals. And then we also hope to share and educate. And this is what I, I meant when I said we have the data. So we can share data. We can compile data. We can package it so that, one, communities can understand a little more about what the science says to support the things they are already know. They inherently mm -hmm. know what's right, what's wrong, what needs to be done. But we have the data that can sort of validate that, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully uh, what we found is we could help package it so that they can then leverage that data to really advocate for community change, advocate for policy change, mm -hmm. and secure funding for community-based organizations. Um, and so part of that education process is also to really transfer um, the knowledge and the skills that we possess to the extent possible to community-based organizations and individuals. I grew up in Philadelphia. I still live in Philadelphia. And so at the heart of my work is my community, right? Yes. I have that lived experience. I have a shared perspective and things that I can sort of reflect upon day to day, day in and day out, um, and, and sort of relay back to community members. But it's really important for me that there is something sustainable that we leave with our communities. And when I say leave, I don't mean we're leaving, but I mean they have to own some things. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we definitely can transfer is data and uh, the knowledge that we have generated to support the work that they do. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I really resonate with all of that. One of the things that has happened recently is that there was a New York Times article with Dr. South's work, and that's what got a lot of attention drawn to the Urban Health Lab. And it was specifically about preventing gun violence and the work and the research that y'all have done around that. Could you, could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, so what we know, as I just said, is that where people live and the physical environments that they sort of navigate every day um, really impacts how they feel mentally, how they thrive, how they live, how they interact with one another, and also just generally how they feel about their overall outlook, right? And so I think that the really important thing to highlight here is that Place-based interventions matter because it really 
changes that outlook. It changes how you feel. There is an association with, for example, urban nature and, uh, and depression. So it helps to reduce depression. We know that people feel better when they're around in green spaces. We know that something as simple as increasing tree canopy can reduce temperatures in communities. And when we're hot, we tend to be agitated, right? And so those things really make a difference. But just looking at trash, you know, from my perspective, personally, that's violence. For mm-hmm. children to have to walk through communities and see litter day in and day out, to see some of these, you know, abandoned spaces, to me, that is violence against that child's psyche, you know, mm-hmm. and the developmental process is definitely impacted in some way. Um, and so... I I think they're really looking at how we can um, ultimately improve green spaces, really look at improving housing, the housing stock, transforming vacant lots into places where people can sort of congregate and thrive and build community and have that social cohesion, you know, increasing tree canopy. Um, as I said, all of these things definitely can help to, you know, really undo some of the the mental health impacts that may contribute to, you know, that violence. Mm. You know, I want to bring this to Germantown. So one issue that in Germantown that we're having is illegal dumping. So I talked to a lot of community leaders in the area, and I remember one, one named uh, Eddie, and he, it, he and his RCO, they have a monthly cleanup. And while they were doing the monthly cleanup, it was like early in the morning, they looked down the street and some, and some truck was doing illegal dumping right in the middle of the street, right in the morning, just a ton of debris. I, and it just, and they, they just felt so defeated. I mean, these are volunteers from right around the neighborhood that were, that just try to keep their, keep the streets clean every single month. And I was just wondering, like, how how does that affect an individual's health or or a community's health? Yeah, so we know that where there's a higher litter index in communities, again, there's um, typically worse health outcomes. Um, and again, health being thought of as mental and physical health. Again, I just emphasize that point. Um, I think that it is really critical for us to think about cleaning our neighborhoods. And I have to say that, yes, policymakers have a role to play, but we as community members also have to, uh, you know, be engaged, as you said, this group was, but it's going to take a collective effort. You know, we Mm -hmm. cannot continue to do things in silo. We have to come together and we really have to look at changing things from a policy level, but also, I mean, from communities, I can only imagine how it would feel to, you know, put in some hard hours of work and then someone comes to, you know, to beautify your community and someone comes and dumps. So I do believe that, you know, it's really critical for us to think about comprehensive and multifaceted approaches to addressing some of these issues. And dumping is a problem across the city. Mm-hmm. And it definitely has um, a link to how we feel about where we are, you know, and how we ultimately feel about moving forward through the day. So I, I, I do think um, from a more concrete perspective, 
just working together, coming together with policymakers, coming together with, you know, multi-generations, multiple generations of community residents, the community leaders. We can't prevent all dumping. We can't prevent all littering. But I think collectively, the more that we change the, the, the mindset of folks, the more that we feel that, you know, we can make a difference as a group collectively, and I think that's it. You sometimes feel a little defeated when you're working on your own. Mm-hmm. But collectively, the louder that voice, the more, more we can amplify the good and really share the knowledge of how to get things done and build the capacity of community members where it can be sustained over time. Those are some real things that can be done on a practical level that will ultimately lead to change. And I really just have to say a word for young people because Mm -hmm. I think obviously that's the future here. And to the extent that we put them in the position where they can lead us, we'll all benefit. Um, Oftentimes we create programs for young people when in fact they should be creating programs for themselves and for us. And I think, um, you know, they're really impacted by growing up in environments where there's litter and there's trash. And, you know, kids navigate, you know, their communities to even just go to school because there may be a dumping ground or, you know, some illicit activity someplace that they're aware of, or they just may be afraid to walk by a certain street. And so they're hyper vigilant in how they even navigate communities. So they have some of the solutions as well. And I think that We just have to engage across the generations and across the different stakeholder groups. You actually have the academic research and the data to support everything that you're saying, all the all the different things that you're saying about the engagement of the community and about how health is affected by dumping, by plate, by place, by vacant lots. Um, Is there any other input you would like to say about how the academic research from the Urban Health Lab is interacting and intersecting in making solutions for our neighborhoods? Sure. So beyond just presenting the data, creating the evidence in partnership with communities, um, one of the things that we're really big on is to the extent possible, when we have new projects, hiring folks from the community. So that's one of the things to me, they really add so much value, the voice, the lens, the lived experience to the work that we do. Um, I think it goes, it's exponential in terms of the positive impact it has on our ability to both build relationships, sustain those relationships, and really understand the issues. But in addition to that, I really believe that the Urban Health Lab, and we're still working this out, We really want to help communities to advocate for environmental justice, for land justice. These are the issues that we're facing, we're hearing from community members over and over again across this great city. And we know collectively with our policymakers, we can come up with some meaningful solutions for everyone. So that's one of the things, just to help advocate you know, and amplify the voice and serve as a platform for the issues that are important to the communities that we partner with. Thank you so much again. And we really appreciate your work. And we will put the Urban Health Lab information and how you can get in touch with the Urban Health Lab and, uh, and everything that you do on our social media. Once again, thank you to Director Nicole Thomas for joining us today. Thank you. 
Germantown, it is about that time. So if you have a story that you want to hear covered, please contact us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com or text infohub to 73224 to start asking us some questions. Again, I am Rashida Jamu, aka Philly's Freedom Join. And I'm Maleka Fruin. This has been the InfoHub Radio Hour. Thank you to our guests for joining us today. Thank you to our neighbors for listening and engaging as always. And until next week, good night, Germantown.